This is the second part of my interview with Jamar Tisby. In the first half of this conversation, Jamar talked history, he talked civil rights, he talked about what it means to remember where we've been, where we are today, and where we need to go. My name is Chuck Armstrong, and I am a pastor in Hell's Kitchen. And as this podcast evolves, Hope in Hell's Kitchen, we will continue to dive deeper and deeper into a few specific values that I hold dear and that have gripped me and my commitments in my life. We'll get into that more and more in the future, but for now, we continue to hear from Jamar Tisby, who is, among many other things, the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Color of Compromise. This conversation took place in the fall of 2018, and I believe it rings with a prophetic sense of urgency today. Jamar, as you've done your work, um, as you've lived your life and had the experiences that you've had uh, that I know that I could never um, understand, uh, and as you've, you've just, as you've dove into history, uh, of this country and uh, written a book about it. <laughs> uh, how has that shaped or challenged your faith? Because, mm. man, I just, I got to be honest, if I don't know that I'd be that strong mm-hmm. to see some of this stuff. Yeah. And, and, to, and to be, I mean, you're just surrounded by it. Yeah. I mean, you wrote a book about it. You're a historian. You know, you can't get away from it. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, you're, you, you talk with such hope as mm-hmm. you talk about Christ and... Good. I'm glad you hear some of that. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, it's because God has gripped me, yeah. and it doesn't depend on me gripping God. So He, God has held on to me, and almost in spite of myself mm-hmm. many times. And so thank the Lord for His patience and His long-suffering. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I tend to do, you know, the question is, you know, how do you maintain hope when you're talking about yeah. all of this dark, sinful yeah. stuff? And um, I'll be honest, I do uh, lose confidence in individual Christians and individual people. And I say that out of experience. Yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've experienced betrayal. I've experienced the silence of people who said they were allies, but in the day of adversity shrank back. I've mm-hmm. experienced, you know, losing speaking engagements and, and money and all of these things because uh, I choose to speak out about issues of race and justice. And so that has taught me to be cautious. So I try never to simply assume that someone will be my enemy, but I do try to exercise a bit of caution because I've been down this road before. And I think it would be unwise to go into any situation uh, knowing there's a risk, but just being like, hey, whatever, you know, God loves everybody, so I'm going to try to love you too. Yeah, I love you, but I don't automatically trust you. And so I'm cautious there. But I also distinguish between, you know, individual Christians and the church whom Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against. So I have hope in the church because I have hope in Christ. And Christ gave us this promise that ain't nothing going to tear down the church ultimately. Now, there's a bunch of messed up people in it. And I also, in my local congregation, um, live in that tension, right? So I think when you're, you're on social media or you're speaking publicly, that's sort of a different story in terms of who you choose to fellowship with. But when you're in your local congregation, you're a member of the church, I think it's really healthy for Christians to be in relationship with people who are very different politically, socioeconomically, um, all those kinds of things. So that has helped me, I think, I hope, keep some perspective that um, 
we may be diametrically opposed on some things, but you're still made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And pray to the Lord for the humility to, to be in relationship with people I can't stand mm-hmm. um, in terms of their views. Amen. So, <laughs> you don't strike me as a kumbaya type of thing. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm curious, and I might get in trouble if certain people watch this, but I, 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 I personal question, and uh, something, you know, I think you just given your work with the book and your own um, work in history uh, may have a unique perspective on, but you know, there complicity in racism mm-hmm. that you, we can't get away from that with mm-hmm. the American church. And we see that in certain denominations as well, you know, roots, yep. roots in that, in that racism, um, you know, as a pastor, as a congregant, as whatever you want to say involved in a, in a denomination that might have that kind of history, uh, do you, given your experience, given history, do you see hope or solutions in staying in those spaces mm. and mm. working to change them? Yeah. Or is it better to say, I see the roots here. Yep. And I'm gonna I'm gonna do something else. I'm not gonna stray from Christ. Right. I'm not gonna stray from you know the universal church. But I'm going to get away from these roots. Yeah. That's a really prevalent question. I think it's one that we never have one final answer to, but yeah. we're constantly asking ourselves. Yeah. Um, ultimately, I think the church needs both prophets and priests. Mm. And so in my role as a writer and a podcaster and all these things, it's a, it's a prophetic role, yeah. lowercase p, speaking mm. truth, right? And sometimes very hard and ugly truth. Uh, which brings with it a almost a certain uh, required distance, whether that's a self-imposed distance that I'm doing or it's a stiff arm I'm getting from yeah. the people I'm talking about. Um, but at the same time, the kingdom requires priests who can walk with people because racial justice is a journey. It's not a destination. It's not something ever, anyone ever completes. And the reality is we are on different parts of that journey. So who can pick up the journey when people are just starting Mm. and walk them to the next step? We need folks like that. I don't think that's my personal ministry. Um, I think that uh, being somewhat in a sort of speaking truth to power role, you need some distance from power because if you're too close to power, they pull all the strings. They limit what you can say. They silence you. And so we, as the witness and past the mic, have intentionally sort of taken taken a financial blow because we could get funding. Like none of us are paid. <laughs> like we're doing this because we really believe in it. But we could get funding from you know prominent evangelical organizations. But oftentimes that money comes with strings attached, sure. and we want to be free to say what we think we need to say. So I would say for people, you know, you need to speak your convictions. What tends to happen institutionally is one of three things. If you are vocal and um, committed to racial justice, what tends to happen to you in an institution is you either sell out, you get pushed out, or you burn out. Mm-hmm. And so sell out means you sort of give up. Yeah. And maybe you don't actually change your convictions, but you stop fighting that battle where you are. Yeah. You just can be silent about it. Um, you get... Uh, burnt out if you keep trying and you keep staying there 
but you're hitting your head against the wall and it actually affects you spiritually, emotionally, perhaps even physically. You break down, you burn out, or you get pushed out where you're not going to change your convictions. You're going to continue speaking about it, but the organization's not going to let you stay. Um, So that's just real talk. I'll add one last element in terms of changing institutions, especially Christian institutions, change is possible, but it typically, in my view, comes externally. Meaning, a lot of the more dramatic changes toward racial justice that involve Christian institutions has come from pressure beyond the institution. So, um, for example, uh, if a denomination gets in the news for a racist act, they're more likely to change because of the national attention that's been put on them rather than people sort of working from inside to be leavened. Right. Now, that doesn't mean there's not an impact. Sure. But those those big sort of shifts that you see, yeah. statements coming out or people yeah. being fired or whatever, a lot of that only comes when there's outside pressure. Right. It's reactive. It's reactive. Yeah. yeah, instead of proactive. So that's just from a historical perspective. Like 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 many you know church leaders have said, it's not being an optimist or a pessimist. pessimist it's being a realist. Hmm. And just realistically... Institutions are uh, inherently conservative, meaning they want to preserve the status quo. So they're going to resist change. Yeah, and and you use the word institutions, and I think that's, you know, we're talking a lot about the church, obviously, and your book's about the church, but, I mean, we see this in widespread institutions. across institutions. And I think that's where, man, for me, you know, I just think of, wouldn't it be great for the church to lead the way? (laughs) Wouldn't it be, yeah. And you think of the people sitting in the pews. Yep who 99% of them don't work for the church. Yeah. You know, they're out in, in offices and in, in a million different in vocations. And wouldn't it be great for them to see the church leading by example? Well, I think um, you're absolutely right. And I think in particular on the issue of race, in terms of our witness to mm-hmm. a non-Christian watching world, we almost have to lead the way on race because we have lost all moral credibility when it comes to race and because we've lost moral so 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 i make the argument that that race and racism is a unique issue within the canon and in the panoply of issues uh, in america because of the history because of race-based chattel slavery because of the legacy of jim crow and all of these things it's not an issue on par with every other issue and so the ways the church has compromised on race have really sabotaged its witness uh, to non-Christians. And so how is that going to change? Well, I think we, we, we need to be thinking about a civil rights movement, but directed toward the church. Hmm. Um, so what if we used nonviolent direct action protest, uh, but, but we directed it toward denominations and conferences? And I know that sounds horribly divisive, but look... If we have church leaders, which we do, openly promoting bigotry or, which is probably more frequently the case, absolute obstinacy about substantive change, change, then why do we continue to go to the conferences they host? Hmm. Why do we continue to buy their books? Why do we continue to positively quote them? So my point is, if you really disagree, then do something about it, right? Like beyond the tweet, which 
I do a lot. I'm not knocking it. <laughs> but action. And then it gets to witness. Because when, the, when Christians hold Christians accountable, then non-Christians say, okay, they, they mean what they say. Mm. They, they see what we see in terms of their shortcomings. But why is it so often that non-Christians have to point out problems in the church? Right. I think it should be Christians, right? And we ought to, on this issue of race, be very adamant. Because A, the proof is all there. Like, we've got the historical receipts for racism in the church. And B, we know it's such a salient issue even today that I think if we can move the needle on that in a positive direction, a lot of other positive things happen. But Jamar, man, as soon as you start doing that, you're going to get labeled a social justice warrior. Right? I like we that see term. That. You that like sounds that? Like, yeah. What's wrong with that, yeah, right? Really. Yeah. But man, we just, I mean, you talk about the example you give about making a civil rights movement directed at the church sounds divisive and yet the flip side is well instantly getting labeled a Mm -hmm. cultural marxist or a social justice warrior and and divisive right there and using words to sort of demean Mm -hmm. the work of the church and so i you know i i'd like to think that yeah i like that term that's great Mm -hmm. call Mm -hmm. me that Mm -hmm. uh but i've seen people kind of get close to the line and then as soon as that the possibility of those names starting getting lobbed at you you kind of back up right and you stand still on the pedway and so what is it that how do we how do we turn around and walk the other way you yeah. know how do we get that sea right. of arc how do we commit i think uh, so so again in matthew 25 yeah. jesus says what whatsoever you did for the least of these my brothers or sisters you did for me and so in a very real way, the more you pursue justice, the more you pursue Christ. And the, the, the word of assurance I can give to people who are sort of um, worried about the reaction and the opposition they might get is, yeah, other people may oppose you, but that's when Christ comes near you mm. in a way you've never experienced before. So the promise that Christ gives, I love, I love in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, uh, Moses has died. Joshua is about to take over. Yeah. Big shoes to fill. Moses spoke face to face with God, and there's millions of Israelites. He's supposed to lead into a hostile territory and fight battles to enter the promised land. And so naturally, he's trepidatious. He's like, God, what are you doing? <laughs> and three times in the first nine verses, God says, "Be strong and courageous." And then in the ninth verse, he gives Joshua a promise. He doesn't say, be strong, courageous, and just sort of grit your teeth and bear through it. He says, be strong, courageous, because I'm going to be with you wherever you Mm. go. And then Jesus, or God fulfills that promise in the New Testament by sending Emmanuel, God with us. And so the, 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 the command he gave to Joshua, and which he gives to all Christians, be strong and courageous, is confirmed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You never realize that until you have to go and do something that requires you to be strong and courageous, yeah. like fighting for justice. And so I can guarantee if you pursue justice, then you're going to experience Christ in a way you never have before. I think of um, Martin Luther King's kitchen table moment. So this is uh, early 1956. Um, the Montgomery bus boycott has been going on for a few weeks. And he's getting death threats. Um, he gets another death threat one night, and it's he can't sleep. It's like midnight. He makes himself a cup of coffee, and he's like, God, I can't do this. 
I don't have it in me. I'm afraid. They're threatening my family. And then he talks about going back to the God that his Baptist preacher father taught him about. And about all those promises about never leaving him alone and about how it's good and right to pursue these things. And he has a, a personal encounter with Christ in, in, at that lonely kitchen table and experiences Christ in a way that he had never felt him before. And as a result of that kitchen table moment where he just breaks down in weakness before Christ, that Christ lifts him up in strength, and he's able to go on for 13 years to be the face of the American Civil Rights Movement. And so we have to have our own kitchen table moments in this pursuit of justice. And you will get to that point where you feel like, Lord, I can't do this. But that's when he comes and meets you. Yeah, and we can't do it alone. There's no way we can do that alone. Uh, and I think King definitely represents that. I think just conversations I've had, I mean, where I start my, you know, the scales start falling from my eyes. Mm-hmm. I, I think, well, I couldn't have done that by myself. Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. conversations like this, I'm just thinking like, I can't do this by myself. Word. You know, yeah. there's no way. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. And we're not supposed to. And we're not supposed to. Man. Uh, yeah. That'll be the quickest way you burn out. Um, yeah. You know, one of the most vital aspects in this work has been for me, uh, a community of Christians who aren't even in my geographic area. I yeah. mean, we are connecting on like group text messages and like, <laughs> that's my therapy sometimes. Yeah. And you get what you can get because the people you need may not always be in physical proximity right. to you. But the point is never to allow yourself to be cut off from the church. Right. And now you need a safe community, right? These are people who understand you, understand your perspective. For me, I got to get around other black Christians because they understand what it feels like to be black in America. It's not a racist thing. It's that I don't want to explain all of these issues to someone who's never experienced them before and and, and can't understand them. Uh, But I also need to just be around Christians in general because they help give me a spiritual perspective and, and, and strengthen me in that way as well. So the admonishment and the encouragement is to always be seeking community even if you don't have one right now that's something that's a prayer god loves to answer yeah. and and we ought to be praying for it constantly how's twitter fit into that <laughs> you talk about a it's not sometimes it's not the most strengthening uh community mm-hmm. and yet you know you're really active on it and mm-hmm. i find a lot of encouragement mm-hmm. when i when i see what you're you're talking about but i also know how dangerous twitter is yes. and i see replies and i see comments and you know i think five years ago we would have rolled our eyes thinking like, oh, we're going to talk about Twitter. Like right, this. right, but right. But today, I mean, it is it's a big part of our society. leader of the country, you know, <laughs> communicates through Twitter. Right, right. And so there's no, there's no saying that Twitter's not a big deal. Word, word. Uh, yeah. How do you stay strong in the face of things like social media? Um, block and mute are your friends. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't get into That's it good, too man. much on Twitter yeah. except as a pedagogical okay. method, right? Yeah. So, so. I have very low hope that I'll persuade anybody (laughs) to change their minds over social media. But if I do go back and forth with someone, it's for the sake of people who are watching. And they might get tools or answers or or, or methods that will help them in their personal conversations. But, I mean, Twitter has been a place of tremendous opportunity for me. Um, Many of my uh, uh, opportunities to write for national news outlets came 
uh, through things, thoughts I've shared on Twitter and people have contacted me and said, hey, would you expand this? Um, and then I love where I'm friends with you on Facebook or Twitter and then we get to meet in real life. Yeah. It's like we're not starting from scratch. Right. We, we yeah. have some interaction. Yeah. And so I think it's a wonderful tool, but it's also just something that it's very powerful. And like anything that's powerful, it can be used um, powerfully for good or powerfully for evil. Yeah. Um, and I think it has been, <laughs> obviously. And Christians have gotten caught up in that. Yeah. That's a topic for another podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you want to uh, interact with Jamar, he's on Twitter, Jamar Tisby, and uh, make sure to you know check out the podcast, Pass the Mic, The Witness, uh, The Black Christian Collective, and uh, the new book, The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism. Jamar, thank you so much, man. Absolutely. Absolutely.